What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. We don't want no trouble. That's just the way, isn't it? You don't want trouble, but sometimes trouble wants you. We weren't looking for any trouble, Josh. Trouble found us anyway. That clip from Jennifer Kent's The Nightingale, an intensely violent and upsetting revenge tale set in early 19th century Tasmania. It's the follow-up to Kent's brilliant debut film, 2014's The Babadook. That review, plus our Marlena Dietrich, Joseph von Sternberg marathon continues with 1930s Morocco. All that and more. Anybody who has faith in me is a sucker. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. This week, Dietrich goes to Hollywood. The second film in our Marlena Dietrich, Joseph von Sternberg marathon, 1930s Morocco. It's the same year as the film we discussed last week, The Blue Angel, actually released ahead of The Blue Angel. And this film is their first Hollywood collaboration, co-starring a very young Gary Cooper. Yeah, I think probably about seven years into his career at this point. An interesting presence in this film. I want to talk about Gary Cooper. That's a very diplomatic way to put it. We will get into that and more later in the show. But first, we haven't done a top five one-timers episode in a while. Film so harrowing that you can't imagine putting yourself through it more than once. This week's review, Jennifer Kent's The Nightingale, a really good candidate for a list just like that. Yeah, especially if you measure it by the number of times you actually look away from the screen and are afraid to look back. Or... If you're watching it at home, like I think we both did, actively get up and contemplate either shutting it off or at least trying to skip ahead. Well, let's see if we can get through this review. Sit and cry my get me to the soldiers that came by this morning. It's too dangerous. Up north, they kill us. You sure you want to follow him? They close. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> I don't want no trouble. I'll sell my rock. I'll sell my. The narrative thrust of Jennifer Kent's The Nightingale is lean and mean. Ashleen Fanchosi stars as Claire, an Irish convict in 1825 Tasmania who, though married and the mother of an infant, is still under the service of a cruel British military officer played by Sam Claflin. After a violent assault leaves her devastated and nearly dead, she pursues the offenders into the wilderness, convincing an aboriginal tracker named Billy, played by Bakley Gunnambar, to serve as her guide. We've already noted, Adam, that there is some rough material in the Nightingale, and certainly the revenge genre is known for its ample violence. So maybe that's not necessarily a distinguishing characteristic of the movie, though we can talk about the distinction of a female director depicting this sort of sexual violence. I do think the Nightingale distinguishes itself within the genre in other ways, though, Adam, and I'm curious to hear if you felt the same. As another story of revenge, even specifically female revenge, Did the movie surprise you at all, or was The Nightingale mostly a familiar, if tough, sit? Very tough sit, and absolutely there are 
distinctions in terms of other revenge films. I'm not sure those distinctions add up to it being a great film, but I think we should discuss them. Revenge movies are usually pretty slick. Whether there's lots of violence or not, it's usually cool movie violence, which can be satisfying and fun. And there's definitely nothing satisfying or fun about the violence on display here, which is repeatedly unsettling and disturbing. And even just when you think you've gotten past it after maybe the 30-minute mark, you realize, no, it's going to keep giving it to you along the way. But if you name the first, I don't know, eight to 10 revenge movies that come to mind, chances are all of them, or at least 90% of them, are going to be about men seeking revenge. I allow for a little bit of discrepancy there because Kill Bill probably is one that most people listening and I think about as a revenge movie that would be an exception. And among those that I'm thinking of, it's likely that the man is avenging some horrible act done to someone he cares about, right? It's usually a man avenging mm -hmm. something that was done to his wife or his wife and kids or somebody else's child. So here in The Nightingale, it being a woman, an avenging woman, that makes it rare. And then I feel like you can't completely overlook that she's as much a victim as her husband and child. Certainly we see how abused she is repeatedly, and she's also left for dead in the movie. So avenging herself, but really, I think more than anything, she's avenging her husband and child here. And yet the power of it, the cumulative effect of everything that's done wrong to her, I think here is something we have to note. I saw you referenced it, I think in a tweet, the movie it's most comparable to, though very different in tone overall, is True Grit. Because both of those movies are hybrid revenge, road, slash buddy movies, right? Maddie depends on Rooster to help guide her through some terrain that she can't navigate on her own, the same way Claire here depends on Billy. And the relationship, as I recall, True Grit starts out pretty adversarial, kind of like it does here, very different terms, but adversarial, and it evolves into something much more intimate over the course of the journey. I think the key difference between this film and something like True Grit, and you adore that film more than I do. It's a Coen Brothers film I like and very much appreciate, but don't have it in my top five or maybe even top ten. You can correct me if I'm wrong. The recurrence of violence in frontier life that we see in that movie mirrors the everyday violence that we see in this land the British are supposedly trying to civilize. But I think the Cones are much more interested in other philosophical questions posed by Maddie's mission, and they aren't using her mission as a means to explore a much larger and more despicable crime like Kent is, which here is colonialism and its requisite subjugation and extermination of a group of people who are viewed by the colonizers as less than. I don't recall True Grit really being about manifest destiny and its horrors per se. The volume of pain that Claire and Billy are vessels for in The Nightingale, I think certainly does make it unique. Yeah, it's that Billy element. I think that is a distinction from True Grit because we don't really get a significant Native American voice in the Coen Brothers film as we do here with Billy. And so I think that is a distinction. The one thing that they at once share but also maybe differs that I would also say is how much they work as acts of satisfying revenge or, as you put it, fun revenge. I think both movies, Cohen's True Grit and The Nightingale, are not interested in that at all to a point. I'd say True Grit follows through on that in questioning the after effects of uh, the violence that is perpetrated 
in revenge, mm-hmm. in getting vengeance. And I thought the Nightingale was really going to follow a similar path because about halfway through when, and this isn't really a spoiler, but I'll try to dance around it a bit, when Claire encounters someone and gets a chance to get some revenge and does that, the aftermath of that is handled so differently than many other revenge films I've seen in that it gives a lot of time to her regret. And the movie goes on for the next segment to suggest that this has almost, it's more about the cycle of violence at this point. This has almost made her re-suffer her own trauma Hmm. by enacting trauma on someone else. Um, And and this is shown when she falls to the ground. She there's a sense where she's slowly losing her mind as this mission goes on. And this is a break. Her act of violence is a breaking point for her. And she becomes, we'll talk about my use of this word a little bit more, I want to at least, the haunted. Whereas previously she was doing the haunting of these offenders. Now suddenly she starts suffering these visions of the dead, specifically the Mm -hmm. person she killed. Um, And again, it just becomes this devastating depiction of the cycle of violence um, and how the, the victim can become abuser. Yeah. Now, what I want to get into, which we can't without real spoilers, is there's an epilogue to this film that I think completely abandons that. Um, And instead of becoming a consideration of the cycle of violence, it reverts back to this idea that there can't be satisfaction unless we see the perpetrators physically suffer. Mm -hmm. And the two things why that struck me as a wrong chord is because it stood apart from what we saw earlier with Claire. And also, I didn't like how Billy was used to no. to get to that point. I think it turns him into – it sets his story aside and puts it more in service of Claire. He becomes a sacrificial servant. Um, and so there are two things that just seemed at odds for me about that ending compared to what we got in that middle section. Yeah, I completely agree with you, though, taking those – thematic violations, if you will, out of the question for the moment, it bothered me more just as pure storytelling. I feel like the last 45 minutes or so of this film goes in a lot of different directions, introduces a lot of plot machinations and a lot more ideas that I'm not sure the structure really needed or this story really needed. And I was thinking about this film, of course, as I'm sure you did at points in relation to Kent's first film, The Babadook. And whenever I talk about that movie and I talk about the monster and what he represents in that film, I focus on it. I always say the same thing as a manifestation of the mother's grief over losing her husband. Now, I know there are other factors at play, but that's what I always focus on. And when I see other people talk about or write about the Babadook, they mention the resentment towards her difficult child and trying to raise him or her own fears as a mother and her failing her son and potentially even hurting her son. Again, all those elements are there, but you can characterize it in many different ways and focus on those different elements. And as I said, the reality is it's all of those things that are taking their mental and psychological toll on her. And for me, that movie was so effective as this harrowing combination of everyday dread and supernatural horror. You watch that film and simultaneously you're never thinking about the Babadook as a metaphor. It's a very real, tangible threat, Mm -hmm. but you're always aware of its function as a metaphor. And obviously beyond the whole endeavor in this movie, The Nightingale, as I suggested, being one big metaphor for the heinousness of colonialism, this movie is also called The Nightingale. And Claire represents this, this caged bird forced to sing that melodious song that is always also a song of sorrow that only becomes more sorrowful. And 
the more, for me, winding and ragged the story gets, the more I felt like Kent was trying to tap that metaphor to try to wring something powerful out of all this misery and suffering that we were witnessing. So there's more singing. There's more bird imagery. Every time she looks up into the sky, Billy, as her companion, becomes the blackbird, as he describes himself. And none of it for me, Josh, really had any clarity or force behind it, culminating with an ending, and I'm going to the very end of the film, that sits precisely in this purgatory that I suppose Claire is in for most of the movie, where it doesn't really offer a resolution, it doesn't really offer a reckoning, it seems to want it to be this transcendent moment, a transcendent, metaphorical, beautiful moment that, for me, never had that impact. Yeah, I don't think the ending lands at the very final moments either, maybe for slightly different reasons, though. I actually did like the song motif quite a bit that she weaves into this. The fact that they're both singers. As mm. you say, Claire is forced to sing for the British officer and she sings at a few other points during the film and Billy sings about his name, that it means Blackbird right. for her. And those elements I thought were very effective in terms of capturing the word you used, their sorrow, but also their pride in who they are as individuals. Much better than uh, another hesitation I had about the movie is a lot of this is really underlined in terms of who they represent in some of these uh, fireside talks she and Billy have. And it gets a little declaratory where yes. the, the right, so the themes are just stated For sure. in dialogue. And we have a lot in common. That's not necessary because the yeah. songs are so poetic and the performances in those songs yeah. tell us the same yeah, thing. Yeah, that balance of the realism and the poetry for me was that larger struggle with the entire film, I think. And I, I, for me, it was there strong, strongly enough in, in those songs. But you mentioned The Babadook. So here's a connection for me is the fact that, as you said, that movie is very much about a mother and child being haunted in one sense by this supernatural figure and Fairly quickly into the Nightingale, I started to ask myself, In this time, is the mother the specter? Hmm. And I think you can ask at maybe three different points in this film, is Claire dead? Um, has she actually passed over to the other side in some sense? And she is now haunting these men that she's pursuing. And I think this registers most strongly, perhaps, and favorite is a weird word to use because it's a harrowing scene. In the one I talked about when she finds her first target, she comes flying out of the woods. She's ashen-faced at this point because they haven't eaten and she looks like death. Mm -hmm. She's riding this horse, but it makes her have this floating appearance. And when this soldier sees her, the last he knew, she was dead or he thought, there was a good chance she was dead. His expression is like he's literally seen a ghost. He can't believe it. And then Kent even gives us, as she stands over him a few minutes later, this point of view shot from his point of view. We mm -hmm. get a lot of point of view shots in this movie um, when the extreme violence occurs. I think that's a unique technique that Kent uses to really put us in the violence, probably why it's so harrowing for us. But he looks up at her and standing over him, her black hair wild, that white face, those tree branches in the background uh, is like she's some sort of specter or witch. Sure. And I kind of wish the movie had leaned into that more because there are other moments where it's very obvious that she's part of this world. She's, yeah, she's physically interacting with any other question people. Of that ultimately where the movie falls. It's just that there are three what could be death scenes for her. Um, and I wish the movie was more ambiguous about that because it might have saved, and maybe for you too, mm -hmm. that final section a little bit more 
there's a really good scene, I think, where she has a confrontation, let's just say, and she sings, gets to sing, and it's her choice to sing. Yes. And what it reminded me of, and maybe it's just because we saw Macbeth at American Players Theater up visiting Sam this summer, but it made me realize if the movie had left us wondering about is she alive? Is she dead? Who exactly is she? That moment could have been like a scene with Bankwell where this figure is perhaps seeing someone that only he sees who's accusing him and who's haunting him. So these are all horror elements that I think Kent laces into the film and they add a lot when they're there. But I think if she had really pursued that, it might've for me at least made the movie a little bit richer. Yeah, it might have. And it's hard for me to really think about how the film would have been so drastically different. I fear that going down that path would have undercut the experience and the suffering of the other people who suffer in this film, including Billy, by making them somehow pawns in this experience that only she was having. And I, I think it's more expansive than that. I like your point about Macbeth a lot, though you could argue there's a comparison even in just the way she is constantly seeing ghosts in this film and the impact that has on her. For me, where this movie really does work is when, and this gets to an exact scene that you touched on, is when the mother and the metaphor collide directly. I didn't see her as a ghost, but when Claire finally does get to act out her vengeance, the violence is so all-encompassing and so overwhelming that it really does transform her. The reaction Billy has to her, the reaction we have to her in close-up, that's where she becomes the monster herself, absolutely. And we were teasing the show on our last episode. I remember making a comment about how this was a horror movie. And I honestly realized the Friday that we were posting it, oh, I probably should have rephrased that because I was thinking it must be a horror movie just because it's Jennifer Kent and that's what the Babadook was. But based on what little I know about it, that's not really accurate, more of a revenge tale, maybe even more of a thriller. And then you watch the film and you see moments like that and you see some of the moments that you talked about. And that horror element is absolutely undeniable in this movie. And I want to go back to that act, the violence that she commits against a guy who we could say easily deserves it. But I feel like there's even some commentary going on there by Kent in the person that gets to really experience the full force of her wrath. He's part of this evil trio. And as I suggested, not blameless by any stretch. He definitely does some horrible things. More than that, he allows himself to be witness and to participate in some horrible acts that he could potentially have walked away from or not participated in at all. He doesn't do that. So he's definitely guilty. But of the three, he's the only one who you get the sense could otherwise go through the whole rest of his life and not do terrible things to other people if he wasn't put in certain situations by other people who have power over him. He shows remorse. He isn't uncompassionate totally. And of those three, he's the one who suffers the most out of anyone in this film. It just seems so perfect that in this time and place and all the other suffering that we witness in the movie, that once again, it's the weakest character who ends up suffering the most. Well, and that this systemic violence is all-consuming. It's going to devour everyone it. in its path. The character we've been referring to is played by Harry Greenwood, and I would say he is, of the three, also the most shaded. Maybe one issue I had, which you've already kind of intimated, is that these are capital V villains. 
the other two characters in this terrible yeah. trio. And I want to talk more about Hawkins. But okay, the yes. one the one played by Harry Greenwood, I would say, is the most shaded and the most human, the most complicated. We wrestle with these exact things that you're talking sure. about. What should he have done in that moment? Um, well, how did he get to the point he got to? These are all questions we don't ask about the other two. Right. So we're here um, back kind of on the violence issue because you're right. That scene and what he suffers is explicit um, and overwhelming in, in many ways. So let's just wrestle a little bit more with the violence question. Uh, Sam shared with us, he saw on Twitter that a friend of the show, Angelica J. Bastien, wrote for Vulture a really interesting piece that basically – Listeners should should read it. There's a lot more to it than this. But she's looking at instances of sexual violence in classic Hollywood and mm-hmm. how um, things would be suggested more and hinted at uh, because of the code, obviously, but also how this enabled filmmakers it, – it, the restrictions freed them as you know, codes sometimes do to be more imaginative and not quite as explicit as films like – the Nightingale. And she just poses a question really to say, what does, by showing us every detail like this, which yeah. the Nightingale does, what does that add to our understanding of the violence? Uh, I can only say that for me watching this film is, though I did look away, as I said, mm-hmm. during moments, the graphic nature of it did not allow me to ignore the level of atrocities that not only it really makes you think about not only this particular instance, but as we've said, the systemic and the historic violence mm-hmm. that the movie is trying to get us to consider. So whether that's how it should always be depicted, I don't know. But that is the effect it had on me during this film. Mm-hmm. And as hard of a watch as that made it, I think I felt that more than I might have if Kent had elided some of those scenes. Yeah, definitely. It's a separate question how much you, quote unquote, enjoyed watching something. There's nothing enjoyable about watching any of these depictions of sexual assault here and the question of whether or not it has artistic merit. And I think it's a worthy discussion. I think Angelica does an amazing job in her article. I definitely encourage anybody out there who is curious about this topic to read it. We will link to it in our show notes over at filmspotting.net. She takes a presumption by Kent, which is that by not really showing any nudity, she has taken it out of the male gaze and framed it more within the female gaze. And Angelica's article at least questions all of that and says, okay, but what does the female gaze really mean or what could it mean? And is not showing any nudity enough to really differentiate it or should it differentiate it? And I have to say, she articulates it way better than I ever could hope to. But the experience I had watching the film, by the time we've watched at least the third rape scene, it's even more than that in terms of actual people assaulted in the course of the movie. I was worn down by it, and she says it this way. She says, after a certain point, its rape scenes aren't granting us new information about such acts. It simply becomes a prosaic form of horror. That is how I felt watching it. By the time we were watching, especially multiple people raping the aboriginal woman, which happens about halfway through the film, intellectually, I was trying to sort of justify it to myself. Not only 
is it potentially important in terms of understanding the scope of the horror that affected these people and especially women at the time. But her experience, the way she ultimately detaches herself from the experience is actually very similar to the way we see Claire detach herself from the experience, which at least suggests to me that despite their vast cultural differences, experiencing that type of horror ultimately is similarly terrifying, and the way to react to it in the moment is almost universal. Well, they're certainly connected also by the fact that the same camera technique is used, and it's that POV yes. shot that, that I talked about before, which for me, I think, can possibly be part of the female gaze is to actually take the character's point of view, which it's, you know, other... You know, this is something that's been done in other films as well, but I think it is distinctly used by Kent here. And I will say, you know, the, the scene with the Aboriginal woman, it does add the information that this sexual violence is being perpetrated. Again, it's vast. It's it's being spread out, not not just on this one woman because she happened to be under the care of this deranged man, but again, that it's spreading throughout the entire land. The thing I don't like about it is, and this is more in the the writing of the other characters, including Claflin's lieutenant, is that you get you get the sense that the entire country is being prowled by rapists. And in a metaphorical sense, it is. But I guess to put all of that evil distilled into one character somehow reduces it for me. Yeah, no, I think you're right, though. I actually do credit Claflin for a pretty restrained performance considering everything you just said and the absurd level of destruction and degradation that he leaves in his wake. There really is not even a hint of decency about him or unselfishness about him. But I do think that Claflin plays him the way you have to, which is not knowingly evil. In his mind, he's surrounded by prisoners and these natives, and they're all very clearly less noble than he is, and nothing they say or do is going to stop him from taking what is rightfully his, whether that's a military post or sexual gratification. So there's this sense of entitlement about him, which is a little bit different than just pure evil. And I think there's a scene with him that's fascinating. It's actually maybe my favorite scene in the movie where he is having a conversation with Eddie the little kid who's part of their traveling band. He's kind of a servant. A convict is all we really know about him. And he's clearly of a lower class. And this is right after the scene with the Aboriginal woman. You can hear her screams out in the woods. And Hawkins comes back to the campfire. And Eddie says, are you hurting her? And we get this short exchange where Claflin defers. He changes the subject. He doesn't even answer the question. Yeah, and he says, basically... I want to know a little bit more about you. He finds out that Eddie's parents are dead. Of course, he says that he can take care of himself. And in that moment, Hawkins offers to teach him how to write his name. And you can see Eddie's reaction to that and how approving he is of that thought that he might learn that from Hawkins. And again, he's just come, Hawkins has, from assaulting a woman. And in reality, he extends that offer to him probably to manipulate him in the moment to either ignore everything that he's hearing, if he cares at all, or to buy his loyalty in order to manipulate him more later. But it's played by Kent as a genuinely tender, compassionate moment between these two guys, which is the kind of ambiguity I wish we got a little bit more of with Hawkins throughout the film in general. But 
I will say not only are there perhaps the ulterior motives to that exchange that I suggested, there is something really sinister about it, too. Again, this ambiguity or these contradictions and complexity, tender and compassionate, showing for once some humanity towards someone who needs help in life. And you also realize simultaneously that also what Hawkins is probably seeing in him is another person that he can pass on his sadistic entitled yeah, ways to. He's just grooming, grooming. another generation of these horrible colonizers. Yeah, that's why that scene is so terrifying. That conversation is so terrifying. And really everyone after that between those two is because it is a grooming technique. And I think that is reflective of you say, well, how, you know, how did we get from there, 1825 to here, 2019, and in many ways, things are the same. Well, it's because it's been passed down systemically from generation to generation. And seeing that in action Mm -hmm. is one of the most distressing things about the Nightingale. For sure. I want to talk a little bit about a very bold visual choice that Kent makes. And it's kind of embarrassing for me to admit, but ultimately I think Kent would appreciate me saying this because when you make a bold visual choice, you obviously on some level, have to be expecting or hoping that people are going to notice. But I doubt Kent wanted all of her viewers to be conscious of the choice moment to moment versus being unconsciously aware of the effect that the choice was intended to have. And it really was only about after 20 to 30 minutes of the movie and me being stunned by the close-ups and how she uses them here, including some of those point-of-view shots, the way Kent's faces literally fill up the frame and being sort of overwhelmed by the intensity of what these characters were going through, that I fully realized that she is using that 1.375 aspect ratio, the academy ratio that really boxes these characters in. You also notice it a lot when she shoots conversations between people and they're not kind of the standard shot, reverse shot or over the shoulder approach. And it's more head on, almost Jonathan Demi, like head on where they're either looking, it seems right at the camera or just slightly off camera. It's the same approach and same aspect ratio that Kelly Reichert used in Meek's cutoff. And in both of those cases, I think they use it to similar effect. That's a Western road movie. Yeah, that's how it struck me. Uh Yeah. And here this is essentially a road movie through this really tough terrain. And what both filmmakers tried to do, I think, is to not let happen what inevitably happens when you shoot landscapes like this in widescreen, is that it makes it then more about the land than about the people and the experience they are having traveling through that land. Even if you're hoping to emphasize how hellish the landscape can be. And we get that here. And we get that as well in Meek's cutoff. Definitely here with this approach, it makes it more about the people. And she doesn't want to minimize the people in the frame. But that doesn't necessarily take away from how imposing or menacing the land is. I think we get that still with the height of the frame. And you could argue that the land is really important here as well, especially Billy. He says multiple times, this is my home. This is a key part of the film for him. This is my home. Look at what you have done to my home. But I think for Kent, the emphasis is clearly on the my part and not the home. In other words, the land itself isn't what makes it home. For Billy, it's where his people are. It's where his family is. And his experience of being exploited 
is more significant than the land itself being exploited. And we could compare that to a host of other filmmakers, including the most obvious one that comes to mind. You think about a Werner Herzog film being shot out in the jungle. It's about the jungle just as much as it is the people, if not more. And Kent clearly decided to go in a completely different direction. I think it's really effective. The landscape that comes to mind as you're talking about that is when the band of travelers at one point gets to that kind of craggy – it's not even a mountaintop. It looks more like a a hill, but Mm -hmm. it has these rocky stones and it's foggy. Again, very – a very ghostly – milieu for yes. what happens that captures the tone just right. And I think the use of that ratio is perfect as well. It's it's very, yeah, very effective for, for a period piece like yeah. this. I think going with that ghost story idea too, or the horror story idea here, you really see that in some of those shots of the landscape, especially during those nightmare sequences where the grays and the blacks, it becomes very gothic in yes. a lot of those scenes. The Nightingale is out now in limited release, if you have the guts to go see it. We would love to hear your thoughts. You can email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. From 1820s Tasmania to 1920s Morocco. When we come back, our Marlena Dietrich, Joseph von Sternberg Marathon continues with a review of Morocco. Plus, an edition of Massacre Theater that could be steamy, could be drunk. I don't know if we've chosen which way to go yet, but we'll get to it soon. Stay with us. Something unexpected has come up. There's much more explanation coming, but I have this one shot. Just thinking about it's got my heart racing. Bernadette. Kate Blanchett and Billy Crudup in that clip from the trailer for Where'd You Go, Bernadette, the latest film from director Richard Linklater, based on the 2012 best-selling novel by Maria Semple. Josh, that's a best-selling novel unread by me, but you live in a house with a librarian and you just read a lot more than we're, I do. We're just forced You're so much to more read. educated. <laughs> no, yeah. it's just so it's cruel and unusual punishment in the house. Uh, no, I haven't, familiar? Read, I haven't read this one as much as I'd like to, to be fully prepared. I don't think I can pull it off in a week, so I'm going to have to go in blind. Okay. Well, we're both going to go in blind. Now, I did not have time today to check Sam's homework here. So if anyone has issues with this dichotomy Sam is trying to set up, address it to him. I will be happy to pass it along. But Sam's theory is that with Linklater, we get this back and forth between movies that are really Linklatery, really personal films, mm-hmm. and then films that are, let's not say unpersonal, but less personal, perhaps, or maybe they're studio pictures, they're book adaptations. They're not films written directly by him, maybe not coming straight from Linklater's heart, like some of his other films. So you'll get something like in 93 and 95, Dazed and Confused and Before Sunrise, pure Linklater. Sure. And then those are followed up by Suburbia and the Newton Boys. Got it. Then you'll get Waking Life in 01, followed by Tape and School of Rock. I see. Before Sunset, followed by 
Bad News Bears and Fast Food Nation in 05 and 06, Skinner Darkly in 06, followed by me and Orson Welles and Bernie before midnight in 13, Boyhood wrapping that up in 14, Everybody Wants Some in 16. It's a string of really personal films. And then we get Last Flag Flying and Where'd You Go Bernadette in 19. Does that mean that in 2020 or 2021, we're really going to get the deeply personal Linklater film? And should we be looking forward to that instead of Where'd You Go Bernadette? Wow, my head is spinning by Sam's conspiracy theory. I know here. it's great, isn't the it? The one thing I, I think he's onto something, but then again, of course, you could argue with some of this. Like, is Bernie less personal than Scanner well, Darkly? That's the thing. And to think about fast food nation, and I'm not questioning what Sam's doing here. I'll go with the dichotomy. But to consider fast food nation not a link later film because it was adapted from the Eric Schlosser book. I mean. Any number of people, had they decided to even make that movie, would have made it dramatically different than Linklater did. So I think you see his thumbprint on everything he does. But I take his point. Yeah, I think he is onto something. I'm, I'm going to have to sit with this a little bit more, though. And, and of course, argue about it. That You know, that's, yeah. that's what Sam does. That's what we we'll do. Gives us stuff to argue about. Right. And it might even give us fodder for our discussion next week on the show as we are going to review Where'd You Go, Bernadette, and we will get to the third film in our Dietrich von Sternberg Marathon, Shanghai Express. We're going to try to keep this Marathon Express rolling down the track and knock out all four films here in four weeks straight. A little plug for our sister show, The Next Picture Show. It's part one of their Hollywood endings. They have posted that show, Hal Ashby's Shampoo from 1975, pairing it with Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Shampoo, of course, written by Robert Town and Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty's character in Shampoo is based at least in part on hairdresser Jay Sebring, who is a character in Tarantino's film and one of the victims of the Manson family murders. That movie set on Election Day 1968 when Nixon was elected and the film was made and released in the aftermath of Watergate. Of course, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, notably uninterested in anything that might have been going on in 1969 outside of Hollywood. We don't really get any direct references to Vietnam or Nixon that I can recall in that movie. So should be a lot there for the group to discuss. Listened to this episode on my way down to the studio and enjoyed it quite a bit. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to the next installment on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Speaking of Tarantino's film, that is a major part of the current episode of the Think Christian podcast, which I've been doing over at the day job since January. We're still rolling along. We put out episodes maybe every two weeks or so is the schedule we've been following. And this one on Tarantino really in general, because the theme of the show is redemption. I know, I think you've mentioned that word when it comes especially to Pulp Fiction, Adam. And so we're exploring how that theme is traced or maybe not traced through a lot of Tarantino's work. And then the other half of the show, we're asking some of the same questions when it comes to Aziz Ansari's new Netflix stand-up special. I'm a big fan of that special. Right now, it's fascinating. Yeah. And we dig into the redemption question when it comes to that set. I actually do it with a film spotting listener, a familiar name. She's written into the show a couple of times, Sarah Welch Larson. No so, relation. No relation. But we get a chance to jump into Aziz Ansari's right now on the Think Christian podcast. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, head on over, give it a try. You can find it the same place you find film spotting. And if you feel so inclined, you know, we're always asking for reviews of film spotting on Apple Podcasts. The Think Christian podcast could use that as well, especially because we're new, trying to get our name out there. So you cheat on me and talk about Tarantino with somebody else on a podcast, and then you come on our show and brag about it. Yeah, that's pretty much. Great. 
Let's just move right along. The current deeply flawed film spotting poll, trademark, who is the decade-defining actress of the 2010s? The options we gave you were Amy Adams, Jessica Chastain, Scarlett Johansson, Jennifer Lawrence, Lupita Nyong'o, Kristen Stewart, Emma Stone. The list stops there. You could write in Other. Now, we're saying this is deeply flawed, but I understand Other is in last place. Doesn't that suggest we're kind of on the right path here? Well, I'm going to take it to mean that, and so is Sam. So, yes, we will run with that theory, though we will admit, as other listeners have pointed out, and I pointed out last week when we first raised the poll, leaving out Michelle Williams really is unforgivable. Yeah, I gave that some more thought after you brought it up on last show, and I didn't have a chance to really look at her filmography. And I think it's the decade-defining term that's going to limit her, because if you're talking about best actress, certainly... She should be in the conversation. But looking at some of the stuff she's done, she hasn't – she's tried to get that sort of breakthrough mainstream film in stuff like – I mean, she was in Venom, for goodness sakes. But the closest she's gotten to that is maybe The Greatest Showman, which – huge hit, but she wasn't an integral part of. Um, so I think maybe that's – would be the the restriction. At least for me, that's the restriction in calling her a decade-defining hmm. actress. It is true that we were considering not just critical success but some level of commercial success as well. And you might be right. I chose to not do any research and just run with my theory <laughs> that she's the best actress of the decade and maybe ever. But fine, Josh, you can go ahead and rain on my parade. We did get a lot of comments, which we will share on next week's show, including an email we just got from a listener today that I really thought Sam might take the time to dive into here in this episode, lay it all out for us, because he crunches the numbers, which we do love to do. There's nothing better than applying math to art and formulas to art. Yeah, could never go wrong. So this listener came up with a definitive answer to the question. And how's this for a tease? The answer may surprise you. Michelle Williams? It's not Michelle Williams. It is one of the people listed. Okay. But I think it's one that you would not expect. All right. You would not expect the math to support this, but we'll get into that next week. Yes, we will have to. Vote now in the poll if you so choose. And of course, we encourage you to share your thoughts. They might just get read on next episode. You can do that at feedback at filmspotting.net. Let's get to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A few weeks back, Adam and I massacred this scene. All right, seven guys with seven wives. Shut up, McLean. I'm good at this. Seven guys with seven wives. Shut the up, McLean. He said seven wives with seven sacks. Seven Seven times seven is 49. Now tell me the rest. Oh, your sack with seven sacks. Weren't you listening? Yeah, I was listening to hear me. What's wrong with you? Besides having a bad hangover for one thing. All right, all right. Seven wives times seven, 49 with seven cats. Seven times 49 is 343, right? What are you asking me or telling me? I'm telling you. 343 times seven is 24. 2,401s. What you got, right? Yeah, that's what I got. Is that it? 2401? Dial 555-2401. No, wait, wait, it's a trick. It's a trick. What do you mean? That was Samuel L. Jackson and Bruce Willis in 1995's Die Hard 3. It was written by Jonathan Hensley and directed by John McTiernan, who, of course, directed the original Die Hard, which is inarguably... Yes. The best diehard. I don't know if I made that clear on last episode. But... <laughs> I think you were pretty clear. Okay. But let's good. reinforce it. <laughs> that massacre was part of the show where we reviewed Fast and Furious Presents, Hobbs and Shaw. So why Die Hard 3? 
Let's see what listeners came up with. Scott Green in Skokie, Illinois, says the guy who first told me to check out your podcast asked if I knew this most recent scene. His guess was The Last Boy Scout, a 1991 action thriller from screenwriter Shane Black and the late director Tony Scott. We're both big fans of this sleazy movie, but unfortunately, Matt G. from New York is not correct this time. He did, however, get the leading man right. Bruce Willis co-starred with Damon Wayans in The Last Boy Scout, but it was another actor who was Willis's scene partner in your selection, none other than Samuel L. Jackson. In that action flick, head villain Jeremy Irons gives Willis and Jackson a series of puzzles to solve, one of which our heroes are attempting to navigate in the scene you selected. This being Massacre Theater, you couldn't include the name McLean in the dialogue, of course. Instead, you dropped in Butch, Bruce Willis's character name from Quentin Tarantino's revered 1994 film Pulp Fiction. And wouldn't you know it, that movie also features one Oscar-nominated performance from none other than Samuel L. Jackson. As far as thematic connections to Hobbs and Shaw go, I'm at a loss, but keep up the wonderful work, guys. Thank you for that, Scott. Lenny Roy Robles, and he points out that really is his first name, Lenny Roy. Wow, after six years, I finally knew one. I saw this movie as a kid before I really got into films in a big way. It wasn't Pulp Fiction, level life-changing, but it certainly had a huge impact on me. This film had everything a seven-year-old could want. Great opening song, puzzles. A solid, hasn't aged that badly attempted dealing with race issues in America, LOL. A classic action movie ending with blankets and everything. (laughs) Always got to have the blankets. Got it. Connections to the episode include um, action movie cliches. Jason Statham kind of looks like Willis. Samuel L. Jackson is in the MCU, and Fast and Furious is pretty much the MCU now. I got nothing, folks. Thanks for years and years of great shows. Thank you, Lenny Roy. I want to have two names. How do you get two first names? Have indecisive parents. Oh, okay. Julio Oliveira from Austin, Texas wrote in, Ah, the third Die Hard movie. A better sequel than most, but still merely a shadow of the original. Thank you. I don't know and won't know if that also applies to the Hobbs and Shaw movie because I called it quits after Fate of the Furious. So I'm glad you guys are sticking with the franchise and keeping me in the loop. Anyway, Bruce Willis and Sam Jackson. Who's the Hobbs equivalent and who's Shaw's? No idea, but the first tie-in that comes to mind is that both sets of characters start as reluctant allies and find mutual respect through the course of their adventures. There's also the fact that while the mass destruction taking place in Vengeance looks quaint compared to today's blockbusters, it was certainly on the Fast and Furious Presents level back in the mid-90s. And didn't I hear people called David Leach the next John McTiernan? No? Just me. Okay. Ed Savoy in Harrisonburg, Virginia says, I have a sweet spot in my heart for Die Hard with a Vengeance. That fond memory comes from watching it as a kid on TV and hearing Samuel L. Jackson's now trademark edible profane epithet bodlerize as melon farmer, as in calling Bruce Willis a racist melon farmer. I was naive and sheltered at the time, but even then, I think I knew what was really being said. Oh, that's great. And speaking of fun with language, had to throw this one in from Anita Peterson. She's in Arhus. Denmark? Yeah. Close enough? That's it. Okay. Thanks, Josh. Anita says, die hard with a vengeance or die hard mega hard as it is known in Denmark. I mean, perfect. What a better title. All that title needs is an ampersand. (laughs) Absolutely. That it would really connect to Hobbs and Shaw. I don't think we included any of the emails that pointed out the most obvious, even though I don't think this was what Sam was going for when he picked the scene. Yes, Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson, I think both have hair and die hard with Avenged, it's Die Hard, Mega Hard. Ooh. But eventually, all four of the big stars we're talking about would decide that they had to just get rid of it all. That's a deep state connection. There you go. The film spotting hat 
is pretty brimming this week. A lot of love out there for Die Hard 3. Josh, reach in and pick out this week's winner. The winner is Jeff Milo from Ferndale, Michigan. How about that? Jeff, congratulations. Twitter friend, defender of public libraries. Yes. Great guy. Longtime listener and supporter of the show. Gave me a great restaurant recommendation I still talk about in the Detroit area. Congratulations, Jeff. Well-deserved. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net, to claim your very own Film Spotting T-shirt. I think your dialogue is beautiful. I really do. I love it. Then why the hell don't you just stand still and say it instead of wandering all over the stage? You're supposed to be looking for your soul, not an ashtray. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater, a funny accents edition of Massacre Theater. At least it should be if we can pull it off. We're going with the, I said steamy scene rather than drunk scene, but it's really more romantic and emotional. I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And is way beyond us. <laughs> way beyond us. And I will point out by way of hint, of course, it does connect in some way to at least one of the films we're discussing on this week's show. But I'll add that anyone who gets this right, because I don't think this is going to be an easy one. I don't think it's an incredibly obvious scene. But anybody who gets it right, we're friends for life. Yeah, that, that is a hint. It'll touch me. I think people might catch your last line. I think that's yeah. become sort of a... Uh, this is if you can sell it, though. Well... Here we go. Man, I'm feeling the pressure now. Okay, you started off. I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? Yes. And action. Have you been in touch with your family? No, I told you. I wouldn't. They all waited outside the hospital last week, and I just pushed past them. So you don't owe me any Chucky, did you read my letters? Had I been allowed to visit you, had they let me every day, I would have been there every day. Yes, but if we all have rests on a few moments in a library three and a half years ago, I'm not sure. Chucky, look. I don't know if... Look at me. Look at me. Come back. Come back to me. <laughs> and scene. You're supposed to be wooing, not haunting. I don't know the difference. <laughs> All right. I am not we'll, able to modulate that as an actor, Josh. We'll have to go with that, then. And we will point out, in case it's not incredibly obvious, nobody in the scene is actually called Chucky. No. But that could be, think... to discerning listeners, it could be another hint. I don't think Chucky is used on this particular island. It's hard to fit that in romantically, <laughs> Chucky. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, August 26th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. What in the name of 10,000 corporals did you come to a country like this for anyway? I understand that men are never asked why they enter the foreign legion. That's right. They never asked me, and if they had, I wouldn't have told. When I crashed the Legion, I ditched the past. There's a foreign Legion of women, too. But we have no uniforms, no flags, and no medals when we are brave. Marlena Dietrich and Gary Cooper in 1930s Morocco. It's the second movie in our Dietrich von Sternberg marathon. Last week we talked about The Blue Angel, their first collaboration. That one a German production. This one the same year, but of course in Hollywood. 
And you do really see the money on the big screen, at least compared to the Blue Angel. The plot based on the novel. And really, can I just call Diedrich's character Amy Jolly? Amy Jolly is so much more fun to say. It's at least easier to say. As we'll hear, Nathaniel. Amy Jolly. That's what Nathaniel uses. If the professor does it, we have to follow. he's the professor. It's based on that novel by Benno Vigny. It has Dietrich as another cabaret singer escaping some kind of unpleasant past on the continent for work in Morocco. She's pursued by one man, Adolphe Menjou's wealthy Monsieur Labessier, and she pursues another Cooper's womanizing legionnaire. I hope that's enough French to at least kick off this discussion of Morocco. To do that, we're going to count on the professor, Nathaniel Myers. Last week's The Blue Angel marked the first collaboration between actress Marlena Dietrich and director Joseph von Sternberg. But it's this week's marathon film, Morocco, that marks the first of their specifically Hollywood collaborations, one of six films that are among the most celebrated of either collaborator. Morocco was even originally released in the United States prior to The Blue Angel, with Paramount Studios significantly more confident in the commercial viability of Morocco. And they were right. It went on to become one of the top-grossing films of 1930 and 31, and it would garner Academy Award nominations for both its star and its director. Of course, the film is probably best known today for its scene of Diedrich as Ami Jolie, clad in white suit, tie, and top hat, sauntering confidently around the Moroccan nightclub, performing a French tune to a mostly male audience before planting a kiss on an unsuspecting and slightly embarrassed female patron. In this scene, through the thin veneer of her character, Dietrich plays with and defies gender expectations, and the film itself seems to thrill at her daring. At one point, after legionnaire Tom Brown, played by co-star Gary Cooper, pulls her to his lap, she pulls back and, towering above him, responds, quote, You are pretty brave with women. Her paws utterly emasculating. To paraphrase critic Kenneth Tynan about Dietrich, in this scene she is all sex with no gender. That Cooper's character then would find himself taken by Dietrich's Jolie makes complete sense. I'm not sure I can say the same for what she sees in him. Their relationship, at least for me, is one place where von Sternberg's otherwise terrific narrative economy is a bit too efficient, where I could use a bit more convincing. But that also ignores the incredible, sublime romanticism of the film, perfectly and literally framed in Morocco's windswept final shots, where Dietrich stares into the unknown desert wilderness ahead of her and the unknown emotional wilderness within her. In those moments, heels removed, animals reined in, Dietrich and von Sternberg had me pretty well convinced. So Josh, Adam... Were either of you won over by the capital R romantic Hollywood vision of Morocco, or were you merely won over by Dietrich's radical gender-bending performance? Because that's a given, right? Well, thank you, Nathaniel, especially for that perfectly delivered Ami Jolie. Did I get that right? I'm I'm just going to use that as much as I can during our review here. I'm going to double down on what Nathaniel suggested and say that for me, I think he's right, for one thing, and for me, I would even go so far as to say that final shot, which is exquisite, mm. visually gorgeous, mm-hmm. also personifies what really bothered me about this movie. Okay. And it was that I think it we're all never on the same page sold me on what Ami Jolie saw Amy Jolly. in 
What do we? Tom Brown. Tom Brown. I mean, the name alone. There you go. You know, just add some French once to that. You hear Make him more exotic. His name and is Tom Brown. Josh. I mean, back away. Now, I, I don't want it to sound like I'm writing off this entire film because there are a lot of good things in it. I liked it overall, and I do want to get to those. But I do think this is a near fatal flaw, and for a couple of reasons, I just don't want to see this character who has been defined similarly to Lola Lola in The Blue Angel as a woman who is sure of herself, determined, values her independence in a lot of ways. At the peak of doing that, in that sequence, the tuck sequence, Uh the peak of doing that is diminished in my mind for the rest of the film. And it's not necessarily because of the choices she makes, but it's more because I don't see the motivation to pursue Tom in the same way that I see for him to somewhat pursue. Are they engaged in this game of emotional cat and mouse? This is the clearest way I can put it. So they're both being cagey, right? We, we see that she is really infatuated with him. Yeah. But he's really, he's way more cat in this scenario. And the movie wants us to believe, I think, that they're more equally invested in each other. Mm-hmm. I think that's where the movie wants us to to feel things are going. But when it doesn't give us that ev- evidence because there isn't chemistry between them, because Cooper is making a choice to play a cowpoke, and that <laughs> just he's he's so out of place in this thing. You're saying you're Texans never, couldn't become legionnaires? I mean, maybe, but it, it doesn't work in this movie. And and the problem is that she seems again to be diminished by this. So that at the end, when you get that final shot, it's almost. It's gorgeous, but almost pathetic, too, because she seems to have abandoned any sense of self. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you completely. And Well, this is going to be boring. I know. I saw <laughs> Sam's reaction to the movie on Letterboxd, and he had actually told me before I'd finished the movie, he mentioned earlier in the day on Slack that the movie really sticks the ending. And so I had oh, to write he, back he to him. he liked it? Well, I mean, the ending is glorious for many reasons. Visually. But, visually. Yes, visually. But I wrote back to him, and this was before I had heard Nathaniel's voicemail. I said, you're good with that badass independent woman joining the donkey parade following charisma-free <laughs> Gary Cooper around. Okay. Okay, so you're I even put harsher it, than I yeah, am. Yeah, <laughs> I put it a little more harshly and a little more bluntly, of course, because I expected that only to be shared via Slack, and I just chose to read it on air. I'm exaggerating, but only a little bit. I ultimately came to appreciate the movie. I appreciated Dietrich. I think she is the big reason why. To go back to what Nathaniel asked, I did not fully succumb to the capital R romanticism, just like you, Josh. And Cooper is a big part, even though I'm going to admit, just for the record, I don't think it needs to be stated for the record, but he's tall and he's handsome. Yeah. Especially in uniform. Check, check. Yeah. And he might be the only person alive with better cheekbones than Marlena Dietrich. Well, so they both evoke for here Peter O'Toole and Lawrence of Arabia. I'll I mean, go with there's that especially as well. a shot of Cooper where yeah. it could be O'Toole. No, you're right. But I do think that Dietrich's greatest acting feat here is convincing me even just a little bit, not enough, but even just a little bit that she could be in love with this guy or that she should be with this guy over La Bessier. And he's got his issues too. Don't sure. get me wrong. We may touch on that, but ultimately I wish she had just stayed with him. And so That's a good sign that the movie didn't really work. But Cooper here is just that much of a bore. I do think the other significant reason is more structural. And that is that all of their most romantic gestures 
occur alone. I think about the end of the film when he's carving her name in the table like a little yeah. schoolboy and his grand sacrifice for her, right? Writing the letter on the mirror saying, I've changed my mind. That's a sacrifice. He Is it? Yeah, it is. I think it really clearly is that he has noticed. I went back and watched this again just to verify it. What prompts that changing of his mind and what does the jewelry. It is the jewelry. Sure. So he takes a long look at that jewelry. They've already had the conversation about the fact that she used to lead a richer life. Yeah. Literally, but also figuratively, yeah. it seems. Her best years were maybe in her past. And he recognizes in that moment that this other man pines for her, can give her a better life, and he turns on a dime and decides he's going to yeah, go. I, that's why he does it. He right. does it for her. And that's why he never fully tells her even how he feels about her. Even in that end scene, he has to carve it in the table. He never verbalizes it because he knows that she's better off with him. I can see that. The distinction for me is that I don't think he ever sacrifices for them. For each other. And that was the sticking point for me because there are numerous times where she gives something up or pursues him at the expense of something so that they can be together. And he never has a reciprocal act like that. Um, And Cooper in the performance never gives you – there are visuals were given by von Sternberg like carving her name in the table. But you don't feel – it in the performance. You only No, you don't feel it that. in the performance. Yes. That we completely agree on. But there are these signs that he feels a certain way for her, that he has passion for her, but we don't get it in Cooper's performance and we don't get it in any interactions between the both of them. Even her, her gestures, the little salute she does with her fingers after kicking him out is really affectionate. And then her grand gesture is that decision at the end, even in that moment, It's something she's making alone. He's already off screen traipsing through the desert. And I'll admit, it's a nice callback. She said to him just a scene before, I never change my mind. Here in that moment, she clearly changes her mind, which references the sacrifice he made for her. I get that. But then the most pronounced gesture, the scene that really took my breath away in the movie, and it made me think about the fact that we never really see any fire between them. The most outward display of emotion we get in the movie is when we hear the bugles coming back during the dinner party celebrating the engagement to La Bessier. And she has told him emphatically that, you know what, no, whether he's alive or dead, I have no feelings for him. I'm completely happy with my current situation. And as soon as she hears those horns Mm -hmm. and that he might be coming back, she drops everything, literally drops everything, including the pearl, stands up and rushes out to greet him. And that's where the movie really soars. And we get the great tracking shot. And there's a few of them, but the great one where he follows, sweeps with her, Von Sternberg does, through the street as she combs through the people to try to find him. The camera there matches her excitement. And you never get that same sense of connection or excitement when they're actually together in the movie. And and I would say that the movie doesn't even soar there because you have the technique, but you don't have the passion. It's not going to work. You see it in her performance. I think you you see it in her performance. Well, she's she's way stronger than Cooper. Yes, for sure. And, And she's doing her best to sell it. But there has been nothing between them for her to make that sales pitch on. And so for me, even the camera technique isn't quite as effective as much as I may admire it aesthetically. Now, you you mentioned a callback, and I do want to point out one that I liked a lot better, which is a visual callback using the camera again in an early conversation that they do have, which we should talk about a little bit in her dressing room, where it's the foundational scene for their relationship, I think. But she uses the phrase, we heard it in the clip, how there's a legion of 
women. And this I love bit. how later on we see the camera following the soldiers, mm. the legionnaires marching out to the desert. It's a parallel sequence. Yes. And then we cut to this group of women who do regularly follow behind the rear guard, I think the they're called. The rear guard is what, well, that's what LeBessier refers yeah, to Yeah, he them calls as. them that. Yeah. And, and they have food and donkeys, and they are a little bit behind the soldiers, but they always follow them out into the desert, too. And that's a really beautifully constructed- because they love them. Yes, parallel sequence of tracking shots. For, sure. For me, that worked. Interestingly, it was more effective to me and more moving with these faceless soldiers and pretty much faceless women experiencing this than our two leads. But to get back to that conversation they have in her dressing room, I see the intellectual foundation being laid there for their relationship. And I get what the movie wants us to believe, that these are both people, they clearly talk about this, who have come to this far corner of the earth to escape a troubled past. Obviously, they enjoy men and women's company. In the case of Amy Jolie, women and men's company also, we get the hint in that gender-bending performance. But beyond that, I don't think that scene is so odd. Did you have this sense in this movie, frequently there were airless moments, long pauses. Completely. I think part of that is there's no traditional movie score. Um, The majority of the music comes from either a source off screen every once in a while or in the actual musical numbers, but we don't have a traditional score that would fill in those gaps. Mm -hmm. And as we've already touched on, there is no chemistry between them to fill in that space. So the film felt like it was in slow motion, particularly in this scene that is supposed to be cementing their attraction to each other. Yeah, I felt that stiff pacing and the stilted sort of nature of the film throughout. And where it works for me is in the performance scene. And I'm even thinking about leading up to the moment that you've already talked about, maybe the most famous moment in the movie, other than the end of the film, where she does make her way through the nightclub and lands that kiss on one of the women in the crowd. It's the way Dietrich even just takes the stage. And I've seen this great. Right. I've seen this referred to a few times that here maybe it didn't completely work for us, but one of the things that's fascinating about von Sternberg making the transition out of silent films to talkies is he's credited as being one of the first filmmakers to understand how to use sound, in particular, by not using sound, acknowledging that silence is powerful as well. And where we really get that effectively in this film is Letting her just take her time, Mm -hmm. come out onto stage. The camera just takes her in the same way the viewers are waiting. We're waiting just like everyone in the audience is, anticipating what's she going to do. She only builds up the suspense by lingering there on the stage and just giving us those Dietrich looks. And she's so enigmatic and fascinating that she can hold the frame completely in those silent moments in ways that I don't think work in other scenes in the film. I do think that von Sternberg wants us to or maybe just needs us to fill in too much of the passion in our own imagination. We don't get it otherwise on screen. And I think about someone going to see this movie in the 1930s. And of course, the image I conjure in my head is Mia Farrow in Purple Rose of Cairo going into the theater to try to escape her dreary life to watch a movie like Morocco set in this exotic place, even if it was, I believe, shot in Hollywood, right? But it's set in Morocco and there's not a whole lot of entertainment options available to her. And just being able to 
quote-unquote, visit Morocco on screen, to sit there and see this location and watch people who look like Marlena Dietrich and Gary Cooper. I get how that might be romantic enough. It wasn't romantic enough, it sounds like, to either of us. No, not romantic, but that first musical number, I'm not even going to try the French, the name of the song, but it's translated as When Love Dies. What happens there is the airlessness is filled to overflowing simply, as you said, with her mystery. Yeah. And the way she lets, so they start booing her, all the men in the cabaret when she comes out. And it's never exactly clear. I mean, I'm guessing it's because, well, maybe two things, that she's clothed. She's wearing too much clothes for a cabaret act that they were expecting. Mm -hmm. But on top of that, it's, it's a man's tux and a top hat. So as these jeers are falling down upon her, as you said, she just sits there and stares back and smokes. And then we have, you know, not only the the visual smoke in the air filling the frame, but the tension. How is she going to resolve this? How is she going to respond? And she lets that sit there. And Von Sternberg yeah. lets that sit there. That is the dramatic pause that absolutely works and is very distinct from the pauses that I think we felt otherwise in the film between mm. two characters where there's just nothing there. Yeah. And her gestures. I think this is, you mentioned the one, sort of the salute she gives him. Mm-hmm. There's another moment where I think she she flicks a champagne glass out of frustration. And these are all elements that gives us character outside of dialogue. And the second number she has, it follows fairly closely after the tux one, but here she's wearing this feather boa. The title of this one is What Am I Bid for My Apple? She's carrying around fruit, selling it as she sings. There's another gesture. One of the men in the audience grabs her boa mm-hmm. and tries to kind of yank her back towards him. Here's another pause. She stops, turns around, stares at him, and gives it a few beats. And von Sternberg lets it sit there for a few beats. Again, what is she going to do? There's mystery here. And then she just yanks it back into her own possession. And I feel like it's that sort of defiance Mm -hmm. that defines her character so early on that we lose for the rest of the film. And that was what was disappointing for me. I didn't necessarily need for her to pair up with La Bessier. In a way, that would have been giving up some things too. Sure. Here, here's the key. You know what the key for me is? What At one point, she gives up performing for Tom Brown. And that just struck me as a killer because similar to Lola Lola, there is a point in that conversation with him in her dressing room where he asks her, aren't you sick of the stage? And without a second thought, she says, no, no, because she prides herself as Lola Lola does on being an artist. Yes. And the implication is maybe, you know, some of the venues she's playing like this one now aren't worthy of her. They're wearing her down, but the art, the performing, she still loves. And to see her stop that for him to me was just, but did she really stop it for him? Isn't the suggestion that she, she loses heart. She's so heartbroken. She's so, well, that, that's exactly it. Okay. That, that, that she, this one thing that she prides herself yeah. on, yeah. she has to, again, sacrifice for him in a way. So 
that we yes. don't really believe. I don't disagree with you because, again, it ties into my central issue with this movie. But intellectually, I do understand this movie really fundamentally is, it seems to me, about this struggle between the head and the heart and being a rational, yes. thoughtful oh, person sure. and the way love can make you completely irrational and overtake you. And she, of course, in that scene I touched on, the one where she busts out of that dinner, as I mentioned, she's completely laid it out coldly, calmly. I don't care about him. But the moment she hears the sound, love, whatever that is, that feeling takes over and she busts out of there. Everything else be damned. Even at the beginning of the film, when we agree we didn't feel anything between them. She says, it's time for you to leave. There's no real connection. He's gone for a little bit. She rushes after yeah. him. So there's this kind of impetuousness that defines these characters in this film. And I will say another gesture that stood out to me ties in with Menju because he's this figure who is deferential to her. He's obviously very calm in his demeanor and is very respectable. And he genuinely, I think, loves her. You said not that you want her necessarily to be with him, but you could argue that at least with him, I don't know that he would really make her sacrifice who she is. He doesn't seem to have a problem with her affection for not Tom Brown. He's accepted that that's who she is yes. in a way that maybe Tom ultimately wouldn't. But he's not a villain here in this movie, which he easily could be. But he also doesn't exhibit his passion for her. He lets the head override the heart, I think, a little bit too much because nothing really moves him to act, to really stake his claim for her until the end of the film. And it's that gesture that he makes where she decides she clearly is going to go. He knows that she's about to step into that frame that is so perfectly encapsulated yeah, there the with arch. That, that arch. And she's going to step out into this new world and he grabs her suddenly in a way we've never seen from him right. and kind of shows how he feels for her in that moment. But then he doesn't act on that. He doesn't do anything else. He lets her put his hand down and she goes off. So that is a central theme to the movie is that you can't really override love no matter how hard you try. Yeah, you can see the themes. You can see the groundwork being laid. I th I really think you probably just needed a different lead and this and this isn't to you know completely write off cooper i'm i'm not as familiar with him as an actor high noon obviously so it's just it's more of that it's a casting match thing than ability i would say yeah. is and this is where casting is an art form you know you need to find two people who are going to be able to create that alchemy in the middle of that space that's so necessary for a believable romance yeah i know we played this clip coming in and you touched on it but josh i just want to acknowledge how great that exchange is they have her sort of acknowledging the central dilemma and struggle of being a woman in society, in the world, that conversation where she says that there's a foreign legion of women, too. Of course, they don't have any uniforms and there's no flags or medals. That struck me as such a profound statement, a statement on the character's part that tells us so much about her in terms of her kind of fierce independence, but also the pain she suffered. But it's also just a universal truth. Yeah, the dialogue there is great, so probably worth mentioning. I know we said at the top, adapted from a play by Ben Ovigny, but the adaptation here, the script, the screenplay by Jules Firthman. Morocco is not available on demand, but it may be available via interlibrary loan. It is also part of the Criterion Collections Dietrich von Sternberg box set. 
wanted to close out this marathon segment with a little bit of feedback, Josh, we got in response to our discussion last week of the Blue Angel. We heard from our friend Nigel Smith in Tufnell Park, London, who said, really pleased you're doing this marathon. Years ago, we screened Blue Angel at our film club, and it was very well received. And earlier this year, we screened Morocco, linking it to a previous screening of the doc, The Celluloid Closet. Well, we're seeing if you haven't. Then, when I was in New York City earlier this year, I picked up a secondhand copy of the Criterion box set, and your marathon is the perfect excuse to finally dive into it. You might like to tell your UK listeners that the Indicator series are releasing a box set that looks even more impressive than the Criterion one on August 26. It's the same six titles as the Criterion box it looks like, new restorations on Blu-ray. It's the first time available in the UK and supposedly has some new extras. Back to Nigel, he writes, and finally, yesterday I was at birthday drinks for my friend Jane Long, another film spotting listener. Someone had given her a book of cocktails inspired by inspirational women. Maybe you could knock a few of these back on the next show. Man, we missed this email in time, Josh. It looks pretty tasty. This book calls it, simply, the Marlena Dietrich, two shots of rye, half shot of Cointreau, three dashes Angostura bitters, garnished with orange and lemon wedges. It sounds delicious. Now I know what we can do for the Marathon Awards. Absolutely. All right, one more note here from Paul Nyrink in Oakland, California. Hi, guys. The marathons have been my favorite part of film spotting, even more so after watching The Blue Angel and listening to your review. I love this movie and never would have seen it if it were not for film spotting. I perhaps have spotted how Kurosawa was influenced by this movie. Kurosawa often literally refers to how the moth is drawn to the flame, what Lola sings about. And more specifically, consider the scene where the professor proposes marriage to Lola. Lola openly humiliates him by mockingly laughing at him for a good 10 seconds before accepting his proposal. Kurosawa's Rashomon and Ron have similar scenes where a male succumbs to the woman's plan after she humiliatingly laughs out loud at him. And like you pointed out, we feel no sorrow for the professor. He stupidly moves further into the flame. Thank you, Paul, for those great connections. Kurosawa, I believe, at one point, many years ago, a film-spotting marathon subject. And that reminds me of another connection. Our producer, Sam, pointed out that there's a little bit of Ophuls, another marathon topic in some of those tracking shots we get here in Morocco. I also think about, maybe this is too simple and obvious, which makes it untrue, but Lola Lola and Lola Montez from that Ophuls film, similar types of characters. So perhaps an influence on Ophuls. And of course, Josh, you mention the Cassavetes connection to the Blue Angel, and that was written about in the Film Spotting newsletter this week. If you aren't a subscriber, we encourage you to do that at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. You were definitely on the right path, is the long and the short of it. Cassavetes, yeah, Cassavetes and Rollins, huge fans of the Blue Angel. So we have two more films in this marathon, and we'll see how many more filmmaker connections we can make. If you have feedback on this marathon or anything else, and really, if you have any feedback about this show in general, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. That is our show. If you still want to hear more, head to filmspotting.net and check out the archives where you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. Also at filmspotting.net, vote in the current poll. We're asking who is the decade-defining actress of the 2010s. If you want a film spotting t-shirt or any other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. As Adam mentioned, you can subscribe for the film spotting newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. To connect with us on Facebook and on Twitter, Adam is at filmspotting and I'm at Larson on film. Okay. Out in wide release this weekend. 
I'm going to jump to the end of the line here. The movie we're going to review on next week's show, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? It's Richard Linklater. We're curious about that. Or, I mean, who doesn't love Bruce Springsteen? You could go with the new film from Bend It Like Beckham director Gurinder Chadha. It's about the transformative power of Springsteen's music called Blinded by the Light. Or, or I'm saying it's a distant third because I've seen too many previews. Maybe you're interested in Good Boys, the what, 12-year-olds or so who get into mischief? Sounds Josh. right. Yeah, yeah, sounds right. A lot of I know Matt Singer vulgar is, mischief. is very favorable. That's oh, all he is? I know okay, about Okay, well, yeah. there you go. Maybe I shouldn't be so dismissive. But after those three, I'm just going to give you the titles. No information about them. Angry Birds 2, you might be familiar. Okay. 47 Meters Down or Uncaged, which, God, I hope stars Nicolas Cage. Gun to your wait, head. Wait, wait. <laughs> Gun to your head. Which one do you go see? Are, are you aware 47 meters down, Uncaged is all one movie? No. There's okay. no way. There okay. is a semicolon there. <laughs> no, it's, it's, there's it's, a it's a sequel to like a shark movie, there 47 is... meters down. Great. Great. Which one are you going <laughs> with? Is, well, I haven't seen Angry Birds 1. I haven't seen 47 meters down. I, I kind of want to no see. There's no way they're the same movie. Is that a colon? That's a colon. Okay, this you got to get your this eyes is even checked. Better. It's called. I mean, really? So, gun to your head still applies. Forty-seven meters down. Forty-seven. Uncaged. It's two movies. Two movies. No. Choose between. No, I'm saying choose between Angry Birds two or two Uncaged or Uncaged. Oh, I'm clearly going for the shark movie. Oh my god! I've I actually... thought Uncaged was its own movie. <laughs> this is fantastic. This is just great. We got to increase the font on our scripts. <laughs> we really do. It looked like a semicolon to me, and. <laughs> I really missed it because 47 meters down uncaged sounds even better. Okay, so you're going with me. Yeah. But you still got to take- In this fantasy you, where you we still have gotta, the time to watch nonsense? Admit it. You're taking the kids to Angry Birds 2. I did take them to Angry Birds 1, See? and I am not making that mistake again. <laughs> Next week on the show, already said it, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Starring Kate Blanchett and more Dietrich and Von Sternberg. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. And I see that period at the end of the sentence, Adam, so I'm going to stop there. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. Film Spotting Uncaged. I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.